Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode, we look at Harshavardhana, emperor of northern India in the 7th century AD. Harsha took over a growing kingdom in eastern Punjab during a time of divided polities after the collapse of the huge Gupta Empire. He expanded his lands east along the Ganges River, absorbing kingdoms along the way, before uniting lands to the west and further south, eventually creating an empire that ruled almost all of northern India. Maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 9, Episode 5, Harsha, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Harsha was born around 590 AD in the capital of a kingdom centered on the eastern Punjab region of northern India, not terribly far from today's modern capital of New Delhi. Harsha's father, Prabhakara Vardhana, was the king, and his mother, Yashovati, was the queen of the kingdom of Thanissar. It is speculated that she was the daughter of the king of Malwa, a region to their south. There were at least a dozen kingdoms in northern India at the time. Meanwhile, at the beginning of the 7th century, over in Mesoamerica, Teotihuacan, which was the largest city in the Western Hemisphere just a century prior, had either begun to decline or had already been sacked. To the east, in the Yucatan, the Maya were flourishing in their classical period, and to their south, in Peru, the Mochi and Nazca cultures were being replaced by the Wari and Tiwanaka cultures, a transition likely brought on by regional climatic events, including a long-term drought. Across the Atlantic in West Africa, the Ghana Empire was just starting off as a small but growing kingdom. To their east, the Nubian kingdom of Kush had dissolved, and the successor kingdoms of Makoria and Elodia were established. Aksum in Ethiopia was a strong empire, and ruled significant lands on either side of the Red Sea, dominating trade there. In Europe, the British Isles were home to a myriad of large and small kingdoms. Various small Gaelic kingdoms ruled Ireland and Scotland, including Dalriada, which crossed both. England was in the period of the Heptarchy, with multiple Anglo-Saxon kingdoms vying for control. Ethelbert of Kent, who came to the throne in 589 and ruled for nearly 30 years, was the Bretwalda, a king powerful enough to be considered the ruler of Britain, at least according to Bede. On the continent, the Franks ruled over most of modern France, the Low Countries, and East Germany. Clothar II ruled Neustria and defeated the Austrasian queen Brunhilde in battle to reunite the Frankish kingdoms in 613. The Visigoths ruled the Iberian Peninsula, while Central Europe held a myriad of other Germanic kingdoms, including the Lombards who had just made their way to northern Italy. The Avars had made their way into Pannonia and settled north of the Danube. The Byzantine Empire ruled from the Danube down through the Balkans, plus parts of Italy, and from what is now Algeria and Tunisia through Egypt, Anatolia, the Levant, and Syria. The Sassanid Persian Empire ruled from there, east across Mesopotamia and Iran to Balochistan, today's western Pakistan. In 602 AD, the Roman Emperor Maurice was murdered 
and Khusro II of Persia attacked as revenge for his old ally. That started nearly three decades of war, leaving both empires severely weakened, just in time for the wave of Arab attacks that began in 632. Moving east, the Gokturk Khaganate, also known as the First Turkic Empire, had ruled the steppes from the Caspian Sea to Manchuria, but civil wars split them into two groups. The Western Turkic Khaganate involved themselves in Byzantine politics in the war with the Sasanians. The Eastern one tangled with China, which was ruled by the short-lived but important Sui dynasty. In Southeast Asia, the Khmer Kingdom of Chenla has superseded its old suzerain, Funan, as the preeminent power. Swinging back west brings us back to India. The mighty Gupta had ruled most of the Indian subcontinent in what is considered a truly golden age for India since the 4th century. But by the middle of the 6th century, the empire had fallen apart. The Gupta Empire was severely weakened by that scourge of so many societies from eastern China across the continent through to western Europe. Of course, I'm talking about nomadic horse riders from the Eurasian steppe. The Indian sources call them the Huna, and they are also known as the Alchon Huns, a group of Huns from Central Asia. They spent the first half of the 6th century in control of much of northwest and northern central India, although they were pushed back on a couple of occasions. By the middle of the century, they were mostly out of India, confined to Kashmir in the north. What remained in India was a collection of well over a dozen large kingdoms, and likely many more smaller ones. Many had ties to the old Gupta imperial state, but as there was no longer an actual Gupta emperor, these ties were mostly used to stress individual authority in a region. The Pushyabuti dynasty, sometimes called the Vardana dynasty, controlled a region in what is today northwestern India, the eastern Punjab. Initially, they held an area just around the city of Sthanvishvara, a Sanskrit name that has today evolved to Thanissar. It was the general area of the ancient Vedic kingdom of Kuru, and so even at the time it was considered to be the location of the Kurukshetra War, a foundational story detailed in the Hindu epic poem the Mahabharata. The originator of the dynasty, Pushpabuti or Pushyabuti, was a legendary figure. Although he is recorded in contemporary writings about Harsha, he is not recorded on any dynastic sources. Harsha's father, Prabhakara Vardhana, however, was. There are records of at least three generations of kings going back prior to Prabhakara, although it's not clear that any of them ruled much territory outside of the city of Thanissar. Prabhakara ruled in the latter half of the 6th century, and the author Banabata, or Bana, gives us some of the detail on his prowess as a warrior. Bana was sort of the poet laureate in the court of Harsha, and may have exaggerated a bit. Bana's work, the Harsha Charita, is one of our main sources on Harsha's life, along with the writing of a Chinese Buddhist monk and traveler, Shuangzhang. Anyway, it doesn't seem that Prabhakara did all that much to expand his kingdom. Some of Bana's flowery language about Prabhakara's martial prowess may have just been done to please his patron, Harsha. Even if he didn't really expand his kingdom, though, he may have had some important victories, especially against the Hunas. According to Bana, Prabhakara's eldest son, Rajavardhana, 
appears to have had military success against them. Quote, Subsequently, the king one day summoned Rajavardhana and placed him at the head of an immense force and sent him, attended by ancient advisors and devoted feudatories, towards the north to attack the Hunas. Unquote. Their raiding stopped after he led punitive attacks against them under his father's reign. Battles were also fought against Sindh to the southwest, in what is today's southern Pakistan, although it's doubtful that Prabhakara's authority stretched that far. His queen, Yashovati, may have been part of the royal family of Malava, or Mawa, another moderately-sized kingdom. Harsha was born in 590 AD, about four or five years younger than his brother. His sister was two years younger than him. In addition to the three children, there were several others of significance who joined the family. Yashavati's nephew, Bandi, who was a couple of years older than Raja, became part of the household. Also, two brothers from the neighboring and seemingly allied kingdom of Malwa were sent to live with them. If Yashavati was from there, they may have been her kin as well. Harsha became close with the younger boy, Madhava Gupta, and would take him on campaigns as one of his leading lieutenants when they got older. These boys were likely somehow descended from the Gupta royal family, although it's not clear how. This addition of royals from the small neighboring kingdom of Malwa indicated that Vardana power was growing. Another indication is that when she was about 11 years old, Princess Rajashri was married off to the kingdom of Mokara. This was a good alliance for Prabhakara, as it was a kingdom more powerful than his own. The Mokaris were important, controlling the western Gangetic Plain, the region of today's Uttar Pradesh, and east into the traditional lands of Magadha and the ancient capital of Pataliputra. But the Mokari capital wasn't Pataliputra, it was Kanoj, once known as Kanyakubja, further to the west. They had almost certainly been feudal lords under the Gupta Empire. When that fell, they grew in power and began to rule on their own. But by 600 AD, the Mokari kingdom was likely split, although it's not clear why, and the ancient Magadha lands were no longer under control of the regime in Kanoj. In the year 605, give or take, Raja was sent off to deal with the Huna. He was probably around 18, and Harsha was about 13. Harsha begged to be allowed to join the campaign, but had to content himself with hunting nearby, not being allowed to participate in the fighting. While the two were gone, their father became seriously ill. Harsha returned in time to see him, and the king soon died. Rajavardhana inherited the throne, but the death of his father created an opportunity for rivals. Devagupta, the king of Malwa, as well as Shashanka, the king of the Gauda, were not happy with the growth of the Vardana sphere of influence. Across the Gangetic Plain, to the east of the Vardana's kingdom, was Malkari. Malwa was south of that, and then further to the east was Gauda in Bengal. Seeing an opening, Devagupta of Malwa invaded his neighbor, Malkari, knowing that their ally to the north and west, the Vardanas, would be slow to react due to the change in power. Maybe he thought that, since a Malwa woman was queen in Thanissar and the king was dead, that she would just allow it to happen. Devagupta attacked the Malkari capital of Kanoj and killed the king. It's not clear if Shashanka joined him in the invasion, but he supported it. 
This may have been where their plan fell apart. The Queen of Canoge, who happened to be Harsha's younger sister, was imprisoned. Now there was a slight on the honor of the family. The Vardanas could no longer sit back and let their Mawa cousins do as they please, because one of their own had been victimized. Raja Vardana led an army into Kanoj. Details are lacking, but he crushed the enemy forces. Devagupta disappears from the historical record at this point, which is never a great sign. However, soon after this successful attack, according to D. Devahuti in her book Harsha, A Political Study, Quote, to Harsha, waiting in the capital, news was brought by a discomfited cavalry officer that, although Raja Vardhana had succeeded in routing Malwa forces, he had been allured to confidence by false civilities on the part of the King of Gauda, and then weaponless, confiding, and alone, dispatched, unquote. At the end, she was quoting Bana, and the other contemporary historians have slightly different takes, but each lead to the same conclusion. Raja did not survive the campaign, and he wasn't killed in battle, but instead was murdered. It's not clear exactly what happened, but it seems Shashanka, the king of Gauda, tricked him in some way which led to his assassination. Now there is some speculation that, because this benefited the young Harsha, he had something to do with it. And this is not entirely unfounded, as the biographies all emphasize that Harsha was so upset that he couldn't even consider becoming king after the death of his beloved brother. All that stuff. Somewhat suspicious, but we just don't know. And to be clear, he did wind up becoming king. Had Raja survived, there's a possibility, Devahuti speculates, that he could have taken the allied forces right from Kanoj and marched east, creating a real threat to Gauda. Instead, after he was assassinated, the Vardana army was then subsequently chased away, and Gauda was safe. Their king, Shashanka, was not, however, out of trouble. The elite in Kanoj certainly held him responsible for the death of their king, and to his east, the king of Kamarupa had entered an alliance with the Vardana. This may have been purely a reaction to the joint Malwa-Gauda invasion of Malkari, because it is a bit curious that Kamarupa would ally with the Vardana. Kamarupa is east of Bengal, in today's Assam. The Vardana kingdom and Kamarupa were separated by several kingdoms in between them, not to mention well over a thousand miles. The move served Harsha well, though, as it was likely a primary motivator for Shashanka's next move, which was to abandon Kanoj and retreat back to Gauda and shore up his security there. Meanwhile, back at the Vardana capital of Thanissar, Harsha readied himself for war. He was told by one of his leading advisors and most venerable generals that he absolutely needed to fight. He warned him that the king of Gauda wasn't the only one who needed to be taught a lesson, because if Harsha backed down now, the surrounding kingdoms would take note and assume they could walk all over him. So Harsha marched east and he met with the king of Kamarupa, who not only reinforced their alliance, he seems to have acknowledged Harsha as his lord. He may have felt this was a necessary condition of the alliance, and perhaps his own weak position so close to Shashanka had something to do with it. Harsha's march east got more good news when his cousin Bandi, who had helped lead the army with Raja Vardhana, 
met him with part of the army as well as Malwa captives and treasure. Bondi told Harsha about his brother's death as well as the fate of his sister. She had escaped her captivity and fled to the Vindaya forest to the south. Harsha went after his sister, giving the army to Bondi. Devahuti explains that while this may seem crazy to us now, it might actually have been a pretty sensible plan. That rather than essentially taking charge of Malkari immediately, he would go after his sister and meanwhile see, quote, if Bondi could prepare the psychological climate at Kanoj for acceptance there of Harsha's leadership. Moreover, the presence beside him of the late king's queen would definitely enhance Harsha's chance of succession to the Malkari domains. Unquote. So Harsha went to find his sister, Rajashri, who was apparently in a monastery of some sorts. According to the stories, Harsha arrived just in time to save her from killing herself, which, okay, sure, why not? Then she wanted to become a Buddhist nun, but he, along with the head of the monastery, convinced her to go back with her brother. Although we don't hear too much about her influence, we know that even decades later, she was sitting by her brother's side. She was described as intelligent and likely served as an advisor to Harsha throughout their lives, as one Chinese source on him suggests. With his sister, the widowed queen of Malkari, by his side, Harsha was able to more easily take control of that kingdom. In Kanoj, Bondi was there, along with a group of magnates debating what to do next when Harsha arrived. Bondi certainly held sway as the surviving general from the army that chased the invaders away. He exhorted the assembled Malkari leaders to accept their slain king's brother-in-law as their new king. They agreed, and Harsha of course demurred, but eventually decided to take the responsibility without taking the title. Seen as proof of his humility, it was likely a political solution to concerns that perhaps not everyone wanted the king of Thanissar to also be the king of Malkari. He took the title of prince rather than king, at least for the time being. According to Devahuti, quote, Mastery over Kanoj must have greatly increased both Harsha's power and prestige, and considerably facilitated his task of further expansion, unquote. This was the beginning, not the end, of his attempts to grow his territory. Still driven by vengeance for his brother and his brother-in-law, at least so he claimed, after taking Kanoj, he continued what he called Adig Vijaya. This was an ancient Sanskrit term that literally means conquest, but more traditionally meant conquest of the four corners of India, so to speak. The order of his conquests are less clear, but he likely next went east to what was once the kingdom of Magadha. This region had been under the control of Kanoj, and it was also historically important because Magadha was the kingdom that Chandragupta Maurya, season 1, episode 2, ruled before conquering much of the subcontinent and starting his empire. This may have been a somewhat peaceful transition, as it appears the ruler of Magadha, Pornavarta, became a governor of sorts under Harsha. Now, Pornavarta claims to be descended from Ashoka the Great, and even if this wasn't plausible, it is certainly possible that he had some claim not only to his own lands, but to Kanoj. This might explain why he was given a choice role after submitting Naharsha. Perhaps originally a vassal of Shashanka, almost certainly an ally of him, he either switched sides when Harsha's army came marching in, or when Shashanka's went marching out with no promise to return in its defense. 
Harshak kept going east, and probably around 607 AD, he and his army reached Shashanka. The two forces met in a battle, of which we have no details whatsoever, and Harsha was victorious. Or at least he did well enough to claim victory. The battle itself may have been more of a stalemate, but in the aftermath, Harsha retained all the lands he had conquered, while Shashanka retreated back to Bengal. But it's not apparent that Shashanka's Gauda kingdom lost much territory, and it's likely that Harsha wasn't able to press any further into Bengal. Harsha now, though, held most of northern India and the Gangetic Plain, from the eastern Punjab to probably at least some part of West Bengal. Minor states that lay between his kingdom of Thanissar also at the very least pledged some sort of loyalty to this new leader at the head of a rather large army. He returned to Kanoj and began consolidating this new empire that he had just built. He named Kanoj as his new capital. He may have returned to his kingdom and then marched west, or perhaps some of the neighboring kingdoms to the west simply acknowledged his overlordship. Either way, additional lands in the Punjab were soon under his sway. In perhaps the late 610s, Harsha appears to have begun another set of campaigns. He defeated the king of Sindh in battle and occupied the kingdom. But Sindh extended all the way down the Indus River Valley to the Arabian Sea, and it's quite possible that Harsha only took part of this kingdom. He wasn't done looking south, though, and was able, through a marriage alliance, to stretch his influence to Vallabhi. This was the capital of the kingdom of the Maitraka dynasty in today's Gujarat region of western India. His daughter married the king there, and it became a close ally. Clearly now the major ruler in northern India, Harsha had grown his empire to encompass lands that now bordered another major power, the Chalukya kingdom. The Chalukya king, Pula Keshin II, controlled most of the Deccan plateau. The Deccan is huge, covering most of central and southern India outside of the coasts. Pula Keshin ruled from the capital of Badami, in between today's major metropolises of Mumbai and Bangalore on the western side of the subcontinent. As Harsha was expanding his kingdom to the east, west, and eventually south, Pula Keshin was similarly expanding, and some of his conquests were to the north, especially towards the Gujarat region. Uh-oh, conflict inevitable. The two kings met in battle along the Narmada River around the year 619. It is possible this battle actually happened about a decade later, but the earlier date appears to be the new scholarly consensus. According to Devahuti, who, by the way, is an advocate of the later date, quote, Harsha's attempt to penetrate the South is indicative of his efforts to realize the ideal of pan-Indian sovereignty. The pattern of his polity was looser than that of the Mauryas and also of that of the more decentralized Guptas, but his aim was the same, unquote. The commemorative inscription that Pula Keshin later had made for the event says that Harsha's forces fled, although there is also some evidence that Pula Keshin wanted to push his advantage but was unable to do so because of the resistance of the Vardana military. So, yeah, probably a defeat for Harsha, certainly not a victory, but probably not a rout either. The conflict resulted in a peace treaty which set the border between the two at the Narmada River in the northern Deccan. Despite being checked in the south, expansion continued for Harsha. In the 620s, his old nemesis Shashanka died. Chaos in Gauda followed his death, and after a year or so, 
Harsha appears to have asserted his authority there. Adding the large Bengali kingdom of Gauda would have greatly increased the population and wealth of his empire. It is also likely, although again somewhat unclear, that he ventured in the other direction, into Kashmir in the 630s. This didn't seem to be a war of conquest, though. It seems like he took a Buddhist relic, and the king there remained in power. There's just no evidence that Harsha was able to claim the region as a vassal. It appears Harsha brought his army to Kashmir, raided, scored a victory, and left without asserting imperial authority. Probably after this adventure, he moved in yet another direction, this time to Odisha on the east coast, southwest of Bengal. This area was not united, and he probably took it piece by piece. He wasn't able to unite the whole region, as Harsha's new rival, Pula Keshin, boasts of his conquests of Kalinga, which was a historical name for at least parts of the region. The Chalukyas held some of these lands to the south and west, while Harsha held lands to the north and east. Either way, by the early 640s, he had added much of this land into his empire as well. In 641, Harsha sent an envoy to the emperor of China, calling himself the King of Magadha. This is one of the many titles he could have legitimately used, but he probably felt like this was one that people might recognize, since it was an ancient kingdom that became the home of Chandragupta and Ashoka's Mauryan Empire. Throughout his reign, China and India were in contact, although they remained politically pretty distant. There were a few High Hawaria delegations sent, and much of Harsha's story comes from Chinese records, but these were mostly from Chinese Buddhist monks who traveled to India, the birthplace of Buddha, to learn more about the people there. Although these were often at the behest of the Chinese authority, they weren't really what we would consider diplomacy. Certainly there was some amount of trade, if not official or direct, between the two lands. Chen La, which was mentioned during the world tour, benefited greatly as intermediaries in this trade. Indian cultural influence was strong there, as was China's, which is where Indochina, a somewhat antiquated term for mainland Southeast Asia, originates. As far as state-to-state diplomacy goes, though, China and India did not have significant contact. One of the only stories about their contact was actually mentioned in an earlier episode. Harsha had sent an ambassador to China, who responded in kind by sending a small group of dignitaries to India. But by the time they got there, Harsha had died. For whatever reason, the Chinese mission was attacked by the forces of Arunasva, Harsha's successor. He may have done so because they refused to call him the King of Magadha or something petty like that. This, of course, led to a response from China, who turned to their ally Songsten Gampo, who had founded the Tibetan Empire. He sent in, according to several Chinese sources, 1,200 Tibetan troops and another 7,000 soldiers from his vassal kingdom in Nepal. They raided into Kanoj and Magadha, and while it is certain they were successful, there are even some tales that go much further. At least one source says the troops, led by Chinese emissary Wan Shuang Tei, led a three-day siege, which resulted in them killing thousands of enemy and sending Arunasva running. Arunasva then gathered more forces and was defeated again, and was then captured and brought back to China, ending his reign, and ushering in a century of chaotic rule in much of northern India. The king of Kamurupa, the old ally of Harsha in Bengal, sent gifts to the Chinese forces to show he wasn't on Arunasva's team either. 
None of this answers any questions we may have about Harsh's death other than the timing. He died in 647, and while Aranasva has been called a usurper, there's no evidence or even much conjecture that he was the cause of Harsh's death. He was likely a minister in Harsh's empire, who may have been appointed a provincial governor. When Harsh had died, he declared himself an independent ruler, which didn't last more than a couple years before he got independently dragged off to China. As for Harsha, well, he would have been close to 60 years old by 647 AD, and it being 647 AD, it's not shocking that he may well have just died without any foul play. None of his contemporary biographies suggest there was, so let's just assume that. After his death, Harsha was remembered for allowing Buddhism to flourish under his reign. He was praised mainly by a Buddhist monk who wrote one of his biographies for all of the work he did for Buddhists. But there is also significant evidence that he was a practicing Hindu, at least early in life. He presided over Hindu assemblies that occurred every five years at Prayaga, a holy site along the Ganges. Most likely, he was a king who saw the benefit of providing service to his people. Thanissar was almost exclusively Hindu, while Kanoj was mostly Buddhist. Harsha was smart enough to know his loosely held together confederacy of an empire would hold together easier if he allowed both to flourish. It's not clear what religion was most important to him personally, and there is at least some evidence to suggest he admired aspects of both and followed different tenets from each. In addition to religion, Harsha was also clearly a benefactor of arts. Banabata, author of the Harsha Charita, The Deeds of Harsha, flourished as a poet and a writer at the imperial court. In his review of the Harsha Charita, Vasudeva Agrawala calls him the foremost writer of Sanskrit prose. Harsha himself was considered a prolific author and is credited with writing several plays, although some speculate that these were actually written by Bana as well. While he was able to pull together a vast empire, he did it in a variety of ways and allowed a variety of vassal or allied states to coexist under his reign. This allowed for the creation of an empire that stretched across most of northern India maybe without the kind of bloodshed one might expect from, well, conquest. Not to say it wasn't at all violent, but the fact that Harsha often had local kings ruling under him as vassals or as governors was a big part of his success as a ruler. It's also a big part of why his empire crumbled as soon as he was gone. There was nothing to hold it together, and after his death, northern India entered a period of fragmentation that lasted centuries. According to Devahuti, Quote, for the successor of a local potentate, Harsha achieved considerable success. He had the difficult task of building up another empire almost a century after the beginning of the decline of the previous ones. Unquote. His accomplishments were impressive, although she does not believe he is one of, quote, India's greatest monarchs, unquote. The inability to create something that could outlive him was the weakness in his achievements. Still, Harsha was an important figure in Indian history. He took a moderately sized kingdom without significant ties to the previous imperial dynasty and managed to unite most of northern India under his power. Over the last few episodes, we've stayed in South Asia, moving slowly eastward, from Parthia in Iran to the Kushans in Central Asia into India, and staying on the subcontinent with Harsha. Next time, we'll stay right around the same time period, but move clear to the other side of the world. Thanks for listening. 